0: Good morning again, how are we doing? Everybody good? Fantastic. Hey, we are launching into a new series this week. We tried to give you a heads up about it via email and announcements prior to Easter, but we're going to be talking about God, the gospel, and sex for the next four weeks. Now, you may be new with us, just first time here today, and that may be catching you off guard. Perhaps you brought your kids with you to worship. So here's what I want to do. I'm gonna pray for a time in God's word. If that was not what you were expecting to get today as you walked in and you need to just uh, slip out during this time, we totally get that, understand that. So we just wanna give you that opportunity. I uh, didn't wanna spring this on anybody. So everybody kind of got word, right? Word got out a little bit, fantastic. So just in case it didn't, let me pray. And, if, you, know, and you, can, you can elbow people next to you, if you and just get out of my way if you need to just slip by and we will treat you with grace and mercy in that. So let, let me pray. Father, we come to your word and we trust that all that it offers us about who you are and then how we live in response is right and it's true and it's good and it sets us up to thrive in you. In particular, Father, in this area of intimacy as we talk about that, we are created in your image. Uh, We are made to be sexual beings. That's part of how you designed us. And that being the case, that being the case, Lord, there is a way, a practice of righteousness in this area that enables us to know you. And we just sang, we just that we love you. What a simple and good thing to say. We love you. And we want everything in our lives to further that love, to increase it, to take the flame of our affection for you and to fan it so that it grows into a white hot blaze. Just a forest fire of passion for you, your name and your renown. That's what we seek, that's what we want. Thank you that your ways are not restrictive, they're life-giving. Thank you that all that you are is good and all that you command is good and that you are loving and merciful and gracious. And let me say, Lord, that there's not a one of us who in this area of our lives has not made mistakes. Not a one of us that has done this well or right. We have, we have in all the Ways that we could imagine, we have gone astray in this. And so we pray, we pray that you would be merciful as we know you to be merciful. And we pray that you'd bring restoration and wholeness. Thank you that none of us is beyond your mercy, that none of us is beyond restoration because you are powerful, not because we are, but because you are. So we pray that you'd have your way in this time. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well friends we're going to jump all over uh, the scriptures today but you can start in Genesis chapter 1 if you got your Bibles and again we'll throw the words up on the screen. It might be hard to kind of flip around as many places as we're going to go. So you know, let me start by answering the question. Well, why this series? Why take the time to do a series on God, the gospel, and sex? Why would that be important? And that maybe may seem self-evident. We obviously live in a culture and environment that has a lot of things that it teaches about sexuality, and I would say that there's a lot of confusion around sexuality, not just outside the church but inside the church. And uh, I get a lot of questions regularly, and it's just such a pertinent area for us to learn to handle well and to live well in that it seemed like it was time to address this in a series. So we wanted to spend a few weeks uh, specifically concentrating what the scriptures teach us about God, who he is, his design for sexuality, his delight in it, and then what are the implications for us as people. I was reminded of that this week. I loaded, a, uh, I loaded a weather app on my phone. Now, you would think a weather app would be a pretty safe thing to load on your phone, right? So I loaded a weather app so that I could make sure that I knew, you know, it's cold outside, uh, it's warm outside and about two days into that weather app, I'm in my kitchen. I go to check the weather and uh, a very inappropriate ad pops up on that weather app. And I turned to a and I said, you will not believe what just popped up on my phone because I put a weather app on there. And she's like, what? And I showed her and she's like, yeah, you need to get rid of that weather app. <laughs> and I was like, that's yes, absolutely. So, you know, you, on it, you click uninstall and you get rid of it. And I just thought to myself, we are living in such an oversexed culture, I mean the low T ads and promises of a better future through pharmacy, uh, you know, in this realm of our sex lives, right? And and so much so that we are now selling sex with the weather. And I just want you to ponder that for a moment. If you can tie the weather to sex, then you can tie anything to sex, right? And it's it's everywhere. It surrounds us. It's pervasive. And I would argue that. Um, a view that is counter to what actually creates human thriving is what is prevailing in our cultural day and age. And and that being the result that affects us, it influences the way we think about sex. In fact, the church has integrated a lot of cultural thinking into its views about sexuality. Some that are old and some that are new. Uh, None of which are often, many of which I should say, are not biblical. They're not God's design. They're not his intention. Now, So, you know, that's number one. I think just living in in sort of an oversexed, sort of a sex-saturated culture requires us to spend some time thinking about it. Number two, I would say the church has been notoriously silent in this area, that we've done a really poor job of helping God's people live lives of righteousness in this area. We've sort of been the, hey, just don't do it, right? I mean, how many of you growing up, that was what you got? You got, hey, just don't do it before you're married. It's a bad idea. Uh, and probably something around, along the lines of you could get really hurt, or this could happen, just all the consequences that could possibly come from you being sexually active before you were married. Anybody get that talk growing up? And that was kind of the view that was meant to guard us, it was meant to lead us down a pathway of righteousness. And can I just tell you that that never works. Like, it never works to say it us in any area, sex or any other area. Like, this is really dangerous, therefore don't do it. It just makes us curious. It just, I mean, we're, we're human beings with rebellious hearts, with rebellious spirits. And when somebody says to us, somebody says to me, uh, yeah, just, just don't do that. Just trust me and don't do it. Every, everything in me wants to go, well, uh, why not? You know, and go chase that rabbit a little bit. So here's what I want to say. This series is not primarily aimed to be a guard for us uh, against sexual unrighteousness. That's not my primary aim. Now, that's, that's a good goal and one I want to take place, okay? But my primary aim is not that you would be guarded against sexual unrighteousness, but that you would be taught to pursue joy and delight and fulfillment in God through the way you handle sex. There's a big difference between those two things. Do you see the difference? Church, yes. Okay, awesome. This isn't gonna work if we can't go back and forth. This is already, I'm already tense up here, people. Okay? I wanna teach us, I, wanna, I want God to teach us how to pursue joy and delight and fulfillment in him through the way we handle sex. Did you know that sex is a vehicle for the glory of God? It's a good gift. And we've got to stop talking about it or shying away from talking about it as if it's dirty or low or an animalistic passion that is somehow not something that God deeply delights in, has designed with very great intentionality and calls us to exercise in a way that would help us to know him more intimately and to love him more truly and to cherish him and to walk with him. So we're gonna... Spend some time on that, and and that's really the aim. Third reason I thought why this is necessary, this series is necessary, is to call us to repentance, to call us to repentance, where we have failed to live according to God's standard, but also to, to point us to God's word of forgiveness and restoration to sexual wholeness. I think 1 John 1, 8, the truth of 1 John 1, 8 is really applicable here. Hear the word of God, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, right? Look, friends, there's not a one of us that hasn't gone astray. I mean, if you thought you were really good, and then Jesus enters into our world, and he says, hey, I tell you the truth, if you've even looked at another person with lust in your heart, guess what you've done? You've committed adultery, right? And so there's just not a single one of us that has nailed this. I don't care if you have been, uh, in comparison to everybody else in this room, if you have demonstrated more righteousness than all of us in this area, guess what? You still have not demonstrated God's perfect righteousness in this area. There's not a one of us that isn't in need of God's forgiveness and restoration and mercy and wholeness and and being brought back into joy and delight in this practice of sex. And I wanna encourage you, because here's what I know We so closely tie our identities to our practices in this area. Our sense of our core sense of who we are is so closely tied to our sexual practices and our sexual identities that we uh, find it very difficult to listen to people talk to us about it whenever they would offer us something different than what we've done. And we also feel an overwhelming sense of often shame when we have done something that someone would identify as inappropriate or or disordered or not not God's design in it. And I just, I wanna say this. Friends, we don't want you to stay in shame. Now, I don't say that shame is not a real thing, and I don't even say that God doesn't use shame. Some people will like to teach in sort of a new age philosophy, which is not the gospel, that all shame is inappropriate. And there is such a thing as misplaced shame. There's no doubt about it. Shame, the enemy wants you to feel and experience because of something that was not inappropriate, because of something that was not sinful. But there is also appropriate and right shame that leads us to repentance. But here's the good news, friends. This is where we get it kind of mixed up, is God never intends for us to stay in a place of shame. He never intends for us to continue to walk in shame, but offers us a way out of that. So says, don't, don't live in shame. We, look, we've all failed, we've all fallen in this area and in a thousand others, and God offers you a new start Amen. he offers you a new way, he offers you a fresh life. I mean, that 's that's why the Bible talks about this metaphor of when you come to christ, you 're born again. Amen. right that's the whole idea is you get to, you get to start over there's a new thing, you 're a new thing. so I think that's crucial. now i 'll say this too. Um, Here's one of my concerns that, as it relates to that shame. One of my concerns as it relates to that shame is that the enemy loves to use that, right? Rather than seeing that where we've gone astray and God would call us to a new and better way and, and to say, God is merciful and he forgives and he invites me into being used for his kingdom. See, God wants to use you to establish his glory among the nations. Do you know that? God has designed you to be a vehicle through which His name and his renown goes forth to all the nations. And one of the great tragedies of of walking in sexual practices that that are counter to what God has designed for us, one of the great tragedies of that is that it brings an overwhelming sense of shame into our life and separation from God. And then it hinders us from believing, and this is what the devil likes to take it and do. He likes to take it and whisper to you, you will never be able to be used by God because of what you've done. Have you heard that whisper before? That's not the king of kings. That's the evil one who wants to declare to you that you can no longer be of value in the kingdom of God because of what you've done or mistakes you've made. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. And my my great fear is too strong a word, but my concern is that so many of us, because we've all gone astray, are hindered in pursuing the kingdom of God going into the world because we have that whisper in the back of our head saying to us, you cannot do this because of what you have done. You are such a hypocrite. Look, friends, it's not hypocritical to fall and to fail and, to fall and then to say, I need the grace of Jesus and by his mercy, I want to walk forward in a different manner. It's not hypocritical to be failed and to try and extend God's kingdom in the world. In fact, that's the only type of person that can extend God's kingdom into the world. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, here's, what I, here's my hope. If you're not a Christian, my hope for you, this isn't just a series for Christians to learn what the Bible says about sex, right? This is for you. And my hope and my prayer has been that you would see such a better thing offered in God's design of sex and his way when it comes to this, that you would say, that's a good God. Because you've probably been told all your life that God is restrictive when it comes to sex, that God is narrow when it comes to sex, that he's essentially kind of the cosmic killjoy that is not wanting you to partake in this thing uh, in the way that you want to partake in it, and therefore that can't be a good God. And I, I wanna say to you that uh, I hope that what we can offer you is a very different version than maybe what you've heard or been impressed with before, because I would tell you that God's ways are better. Maybe think of it this way. I heard another pastor speak about it this way. Um, The Colorado River runs through the Grand Canyon, right? And it shapes out that canyon. But it's the narrowness of the canyon that gives power to the river when it comes out of that, right? That it's hemmed in, that it has boundaries that it operates inside of is actually what gives it its force, which makes it possible to do whitewater rafting, right? And great sorts of activity. It's what gives it the force to get all the way down where it needs to go, to the Gulf, right? To flow all the way down. And so the, the... the delight and the joy of boundaries when it comes to this area of sex and other areas of our life, to be honest, is not to be hemmed in or restricted. It's to be given force and power. Right, so those are just a couple of whys. Now let me give you a roadmap of what we're gonna do. Uh, And today, if I could just... If I could just ask for your indulgence. We gotta do a lot of work to set ourselves up for the next four weeks. So we're gonna drink from the fire hose a little bit today, okay, if you take notes, have your pen out, be ready. Here's what we're gonna do, okay. Week one, today, we wanna talk about God's design and delight in sex. I've already been alluding to that. Week two, we wanna talk about the gospel and singleness. Now that may seem like, wait, what? Uh, How's that on sexuality? I think that's an area where there's a ton of confusion about what, what does God intend in our singleness? And is it a... Sort of a lesser form of existence. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's not. Um, And so we want to talk about that God's design in singleness. And then week three, we're going to talk about the gospel and homosexuality. We're gonna talk about sexual orientation and practice. I think there's a lot of confusion inside the church and outside the church, but what the Bible does and doesn't say about that. I I get questions about that all the time. I wanna spend a little time understanding what the Bible has to say about that. And then week four, we wanna talk about strategies and practices for sexual righteousness. So if we spend a lot of time talking about what does the Bible say and what is God's design, then naturally there should be a flow out of that that says, okay, if I agree with that and I've gotta practice this version of sexuality, if this is what it looks like to obey God in this area and to have joy and delight in him through this area of sex, then how do I do that? Because I'm tempted to do something else. And I wanna spend just a week really examining the scriptures and pointing you to how you do that. Like, how do you actually walk in righteousness? How do you actually make choices that will help set up parameters that will be helpful to you? Okay, so church, we good? Is that a good roadmap? Awesome. Now, that's only four weeks. We could spend... 10 weeks, 20 weeks, right? There's so many different steps. So we're only gonna get to cover what we can kind of cover in those four weeks. All right, so today we're talking about God's design and delight in sex. Well, the first thing we need to do then is we need to talk about common notions related to sex. If uh, we're going to offer that the gospel, that Jesus's way is a better way, uh, then we need to understand what it's better than, right? So what are common notions related to sex? I wanna give you just kind of two, and they go hand in hand, they're not, They're not sort of like some people believe this and other people believe that. It's really more just two things that are pretty pervasive in our culture. The first is this. It's sex is a natural desire and therefore inevitable. That would be sort of statement number one that's made about sex in our culture, a common notion around sex. Sex is a natural desire and therefore inevitable. Stanley Hauerwas, who is a uh, theologian and writer, author, he calls this um, sexual realism, uh, the realist view of sex. The idea is essentially this, right? Sex is just another one of our bodily functions. It's another one of our biological makeups, right? So you feel a need for food, you feel hungry, you eat food, right, you feel tired, you sleep, you feel thirsty, you drink water. And sex is neither good nor bad, at least not in any any higher sense of the word, right? you know, um, it's, it simply is. It simply is a biological function. It's a biological reality. You find this to be very prevalent in our school system these days. This would probably be what is more often offered than any other view of sexuality when it comes to sex. It's sort of an indifference towards sex. You wanna make some good decisions to avoid certain things that could happen that might make life difficult in other areas. But really, you don't need to do much other than just sort of that cost-benefit analysis when it comes to sex. Because it's a biological function, you need to satisfy that biological function. And because you do, just make sure that you're not allowing it to do something that's going to sort of tip the scales in favor of cost rather than benefit when it comes to sexuality. You guys have experienced or heard this, right? That's number one, sort of the sexual realist view, that sex is a natural desire and therefore inevitable. Now, one of the interesting questions that we're gonna have to answer in our discussion of sex is whether all of the desires, I want you to get this, this is key, whether all of the desires we experience naturally are good or if they can be disordered. You know what I mean when I say that? Here's maybe a simpler way to put it. Just because you desire something, does that make that desire good? I want, you to, I want you to just contemplate that, right? Because it's gonna be pretty crucial when it comes to thinking about our practices in sex. If I have a desire and my conviction is that that, that anything I would desire uh, must thereby be sort of a need and, and therefore, if not good, at least indifferent, right? At least not, at least amoral. If not immoral or moral, at least amoral, right? Indifferently, when it comes to morality, then... You know, then I don't really have any ground upon which to not do anything I desire, and I'm so tempted to want to answer that question now, but I'm not going to. (laughs) That's going to happen a lot today. All right, number two, second second version, and like I said, it kind of goes hand in hand. Common notions around sex is this: sex exists for personal fulfillment. So not only is it a biological function and therefore we should do it, sex exists, its ultimate aim is personal fulfillment. So if the drive to have sex is the biological reality of how we exist, we are biologically wired for it, therefore we want to have it. Then the aim of sex, the aim of it in our sort of cultural, the culturally pervasive notion is that it exists for personal fulfillment or for nothing more than happiness. Right. So in that mindset, then it's certainly inappropriate for anyone to ever say to us that anything we would want to do or participate in in this realm of sex would ever be inappropriate, right? Because if it makes me happy, then I should have access to, to do it. As long as, and the one caveat always that's given, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, right? Now there's a whole other thing I wanna, we'll get into this another day, uh, not in this series. I really wanna encourage you to think about the prevailing moral notion, the prevailing notion about how you determine whether something is moral or immoral in our society right now is whether it causes harm to someone else. And I wanna say that that's a really shoddy way to think about morality. There are so many holes with that way of thinking, this is as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, then I have the personal freedom to do it. Well, that doesn't make something moral. Uh, there's way more to morality than just that. And I would say even secular scholars, even secular uh I was listening to one today, Uh, Jonathan Haidt is is a secular writer, he's an atheist, uh, and he has a lot to say about, he's actually a moral psychologist, that's what he does, is determines uh, where does morality come from, how do human beings make moral decisions. He has a book uh, called The Righteous Mind, actually, which is about how we make our moral decisions and why we get into such vehement arguments in realms of politics and in, in areas like this, sexuality and all these big, important issues. And he actually argues against the idea that sort of just non-harm is a good moral, so is a good moral compass. So it's not, this is not just coming out of a Christian worldview. Most people who really think through this actually identify that's not a helpful practice. So but let, me add this, let me add to this, okay? Um, it probably doesn't take a lot of arguing to say that there's a lot of fracture that has come into our society as a result of our sexual practices corporately, would y'all agree with that statement? I might be preaching to the choir here, okay? But the, the reality is, you know, we live in a world where we say, okay, broken families, we see a lot of uh, single parent households, right? Which is just, that's, there's challenges to that, right? I'm not saying that's immoral, I'm just saying that there's challenges to that. Uh, to, have, uh, to have a, a, a father and a, and, a mo- and a mother in a kid's life, just everybody I think would agree, healthy father, healthy mother, that's, that's just gonna be better for our kiddos. Uh, We see just a number of, I mean, everything from disease and illness to just emotional fracture, emotional difficulty and pain that we experience as a result of the way we practice sex. So one of the questions we might ask is, is it even possible to participate in this view of sex for personal fulfillment? Is it possible to have that as my guiding principle and actually not do harm? So we would say, to, hey, as long as I don't hurt anybody else, then I should be able to do whatever I want in this area. I would argue, I'm not sure it's possible to, to pursue sex for, sex for personal fulfillment and actually not hurt other people. Maybe not in that immediate moment, the person you're engaged with, but at a societal level, you're going to cause harm when you pursue sex for personal fulfillment. So just think that's something to ponder, something to think through, particularly if you're coming maybe from a secular perspective. Is it actually even possible to participate in sex for personal fulfillment for my happiness, if that's the thing that drives me, that my decisions are made according to? Is it even possible to not cause harm? I would argue, I don't think it is. Okay, so we could say much more about common notions of sex. That's really all I wanted to tackle in that area today. Now, let's talk about a Christian view of sex. Let's talk about what the Bible unpacks for us as a Christian view of sex. I want to give you four parameters that the Christian church has held for all its existence about what sex is and why it exists. And then we'll talk uh, about the boundaries, the parameters that come into play as a result of that design uh, of God. Right. So. Uh, And I would say this, no sexual ethic, no restrained practice makes sense apart from these beliefs that I'm about to give you about sex. In other words, putting any boundaries around sex doesn't make any sense unless you believe these four things. If you believe them, then it makes perfect sense to have certain parameters around it. If you don't believe them, then it really makes no sense. I certainly understand that. So we can summarize a Christian view of sex this way. God created sex, I'm gonna say this twice, okay? God created sex, because he is consumed with his own glory and sex is a good gift that helps us know him in Christ and delight in and glorify him. So the short way to say that is sex done right is an act of worship. Now don't take that the wrong way, all right? You get what I mean, right? So let's let me just say it again. God created sex because he is consumed with his own glory. In other words, God is pursuing his fame, his glory among the nations, among all people. He wants people to know and glorify him. As a result of that, God creates many things. One of those things is sex. It's a good gift and it is intended to help us know him in Christ and to glorify him. So sex done right is an act of worship. All right. The first parameter, the first sort of Christian belief, anchor when it comes to sex is this. God created sex, we just said that. God created sex and calls it very good. All right, let's get into the word of God. Uh, Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Let me show you where we see this, all right? There's a couple places. Genesis one, 26 through 31 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, this is the part I want you to get, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made including sex, and behold, it was what? Very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now here's here's what I want you to see in this creation account, right? God makes man, right, humankind. He makes male, he makes female. He brings them together and he gives them a job. It says that God blessed them, right? So in other words, God delighted in and honored them and, and blessed them and then the very next words out of God's mouth after he blesses them is to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. And then he gives them, that's a, that's a command. There's a way in which that command obviously is fulfilled. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. And then he gives them dominion to exercise authority over all the earth. So these beings, human beings, you and I, created in God's image are made to exercise authority in the earth, to cultivate it and subdue it, to make the earth a place where all living things thrive. That's the job that God gives to humankind right at the very beginning. And in order to accomplish that job, something has to happen. In order to fill the earth and subdue the earth, what, what must take place? They have to make more humans, right? You can't fill, two people cannot fill the earth, friends. And he says, I want you to fill the earth. So right there at the beginning, now we may kind of gloss over that and not recognize that sex is talked about there, but you see that sex is talked about there, right? He's saying, look, I got a job for you. That job is gonna require sex. And by the way, I'm blessing that reality. I'm blessing you when I say be fruitful and multiply. It's not something I don't delight in. It's not something that's like, okay, I guess, I'll, I guess you're gonna have to do this. He's actually saying, this is what I want you to do and I'm gonna make it so that this activity is necessary for the accomplishment of my work. Now. That's a, you could say, okay, well, so God created it, I got it, but you might think that God is very utilitarian about sex. You might think that God's view of as it pertains to sex is like, it's gonna be necessary to procreate and to accomplish the mission, and maybe we shouldn't participate in any other format other than just like that. Whenever, it's like, when it's necessary to accomplish the mission, then okay. But other than that, we probably shouldn't have much to do with it. We shouldn't think about it. We shouldn't sort of think about it in any other sense, right? There shouldn't be any sense in which we think sex might be designed for our pleasure and for our thriving and for relational intimacy and for binding us together. Perhaps it's really just as simple as that. It's a biological reality, right, which says we need to do this in order to do what God wanted us to do, fill the earth. subdue so it, right? Rule over it. Well, uh, there are other parts of the Bible that have something to say about that. Now, get ready to get red in the face, okay? Because let me just, lest you think that God is just thinking very utilitarian thoughts about sex, let me take you to the book of Song of Solomon. You knew I was going there, didn't you? <laughs> if you've read your Bibles before. Now, I wanna get this. I want you to get this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this. This is God-ordained, God-breathed Scripture. He chose to put this in the Bible. I just want you to get ready for that. He said, I'm not, you know, look. This is a a groom and his bride. The groom says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. By the way, I don't recommend giving these compliments, gentlemen. They're gonna sound weird in our context, but rest assured they were a turn on in this context, all right? Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats <laughs> leaping down the slopes of Gilead. just means she has long hair. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. I mean, she has white teeth. She has a beautiful smile. All of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. It means she has all her teeth. That's awesome. You didn't know comedy was going to break out today. Your, Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David. I mean she has a long sinewy beautiful neck right built in rows of stone. On it hangs hang a thousand shields and all of them all of them shields of warriors. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadow flees, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh. Okay, when he says mountain, it is what you think it is. Okay. <laughs> he says, until literally, all, he's saying until, until the day flees, in other words, all, all day long. I'm gonna spend a lot of time enjoying this. Until the day breathes and the shadow flees, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are all together beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana and the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivate, captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. He doesn't, he's not literally meaning she's his sister. Like sister, and, you know, like they, they're from the same people group. So uh, I'll stop there. Lest we think that God is utilitarian about sex, this doesn't seem very utilitarian, does it? Yes. This seems like God is saying, hey, this is really good. I want you to take pleasure in this. I want you to delight in this. Did you notice that he was essentially starting from the top of her head and working his way down? He was just describing what he was gazing at and going, this is awesome, right? And just enjoying and drinking it in. Now friends, of all people, of all people, Christians should, should be the ones that take the most pleasure in sex. We should be the ones that have a fuller understanding of its beauty and its goodness, of its tenderness, of its intimacy. We should be the least utilitarian about sex of all the people on the earth because we have a God that says something really powerful about it. Now, ladies, lest you think that's just the way the guy thinks about sex, can I point you to something else? Look at just later in that chapter, Song of Solomon, chapter four, verse 16. In the last half of verse 16, so not the first half, last half, she says, this is her response, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choice fruits. And then she says in verses 10 through 16 of chapter five, she says this about him. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves. I don't get the eyes and doves thing, but they're all about it. Besides streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. I've been told that before too. Set with jewels, sorry, that was a, inappropriate, dumb. His, his body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend. Do you see she's doing the same thing he did? She's starting at the top of his body and she's working the way down and she's enjoying what she sees. She's saying, this is pleasurable. This is good to look at. I am well pleased with what God has given me. All right, so friends, have we made, are we, are we, whew. All right, I'm, I actually feel very hot right now. And not in the way that, not in that. You. Point number two. We really have limited time. So, okay, so point, the point I wanna make is this. I, you know, I don't intend to linger or be you know, inappropriate in any way, but clearly this is the word of God, right? Would we say amen to that's the word of God? Amen. Okay, God has created sex. He delights in it. He wants you to take pleasure in it, okay? So let's just get rid of the notion that sex is some lower animalistic passion that we have friends by the way that comes out of greek philosophy that idea that sex is a lower animalistic passion that's from plato that's not from the bible that's that is greek philosophy that said that things that are physical are bad and kind of lower passions and things that are spiritual and soul level and internal and intellectual that those are good and higher passions and we need to stoke the higher passions and just kind of we do the animalistic stuff because we have to that's completely counter to the way the Bible thinks about sex. The Bible talks about sex as a good gift intended to help us know God, okay? So these are the next two, okay? If, if, you, if you buy that, okay, God created it. He says it's good. The next two are the most important ones, okay? Point number two about a Christian view of sex is that sex exists. sex exists to teach us about God's nature. Sex exists to teach us about God's nature. You may think, well, how? In what way? Genesis 2, 24, we'll throw it up on the screens. Again, this is right after God has made Adam and Eve. And then he says this. They've come into a covenant relationship with one another. And he says in 2.24, therefore, because they've come together as as husband and wife in a covenant with one another, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, there's, a, there's more than sex that's talked about there. I mean, that one flesh idea is not just about sex, but it is not exclusive of sex. In other words, one flesh includes sex. Throughout the scriptures, there are six or seven other times where that phrase is going to get used. A husband and wife are one flesh. In fact, in First Corinthians chapter six, First Corinthians chapter six, one of the reasons Paul is going to say that you shouldn't have sex with a prostitute, Corinthians, is because you become one flesh with that person when you have sex with him. He's not saying you're married to them. Right one flesh is not just a, is not just an expression of sex you 're not married to a prostitute Corinthians because you had sex with her, but you have engaged with her in a one flesh union that is meant to be engaged in within the covenant bounds of marriage, and because you 've done that, you are one flesh you 're meant to be one with the Lord. This is what paul says to them you 're meant to be one with the Lord, therefore don 't become one one flesh with a prostitute don 't commit acts of sexual immorality. Uh, you can go beyond just the idea of Prostitution and into other realms, right? But he's saying, right, this idea of one flesh union. He says is uh, is an, is always the idea that God brings two people together in covenant with one another, and that sex both seals that covenant. And it renews that covenant every time you participate in sex with with your spouse. You're renewing the covenant of marriage. It's it's a way in which you not only seal it, so that like a husband and wife who do not engage sexually uh, don't have a full definition of what a marriage is. Right? He says it's actually part. It's how you seal your vows, and then you. Inside of that marriage, when you participate in sex, you are renewing those vows each time you do so. So again, back to the question, well, how does that, what does that teach us about the nature of who God is? Think about what he's just said sex is. It's a way of becoming one flesh. Two distinct beings becoming one flesh. Now that's a mystery, right? That's a mystery. There's something mysterious about that, but it's nonetheless true. And so he's saying... You become one flesh with someone when you engage sexually with them. And that's why I've given these boundaries, these parameters for it. Because you don't want to rip away uh, the, the, the work of sex in the realm of you know, showing you what the nature of God is like, and when you participate in outside the covenant bounds, then you are not enabling all the ideas of oneness that is meant to be present through sex to be there. You're actually taking some aspects of it, so you're, you're not committed to one another, you're not committed to one another, perhaps in monogamy for a lifelong. you haven't covenanted with one another, and because you haven't done that, you're not experiencing all the oneness. Now, again, how does it reflect the nature of God? Well, think about our God. Again and again in Scripture, God is revealed to be triune, three in one. We call that the Trinity in Christian theology. What that means is that God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are told that that is one God, right? And that's a mystery to us too. We don't exactly understand how God can be three persons and one God, but the Scripture again and again testifies to that reality. The Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. They are distinct persons and they are one, so when, we, when God creates sex, one of the things he has in mind is I want you to know what I'm like. And when you participate in sex, you're participating in a one flesh union where two distinct persons come together and experience unity and self-giving love. And when you do that, guess what is unveiled to you? What's meant to be unveiled to you is the nature of God himself, who is constantly for all eternity been demonstrating perfect self-giving love among the members of the Trinity, You with me, church? So that's part of the purpose of sex is that it's meant to be a physical way in which you experience and learn more about the nature of God himself. Now, let's go one step further, because the third sort of pillar of Christian teaching on sex is this. Sex exists not just to teach us about the nature of God, but sex exists to teach us about the love of Jesus. Sex exists to teach us about the love of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter five, I'm not gonna read it for the sake of time, but in Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 through 33, uh, we're told that husbands and wives represent Christ and the church, and not just there, actually all through the New Testament. So Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, he establishes the church for himself, and then this new metaphor comes into play that had not been in existence before, where Jesus says, the church, all people who would come to me by faith In my death and in my resurrection, everyone who would be claimed by me is now my bride. I'm her groom. And so he says, guess what marriage is meant to represent? Not just this whole thing that God created way back before Jesus ever came on the scene was always designed to be something that was going to, when Jesus came, represent the relationship that Jesus has with his church. So the husband Ephesians 5 says the husband represents Christ in that relationship. The bride represents ch- the church and her responsive love. So the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, right? And his job is to die for her. His job is to lay down his desires, his wants to make sure she's satisfied in Jesus at every turn. That's a husband's job. Easy job description, right guys? <laughs> to give ourselves away in self-giving love for our wives so that they might know and delight in Christ and wives the scriptures say that you have an equally important job and that's to submit to your husband as the head of your household now I know that's a very unpopular notion friends I know it's not a popular notion but it's a biblical notion that husbands are to be the head of their home that they are to sacrifice and love and serve and be Christ to their wives in a very real way and that wives are meant to respect and honor their husbands and submit to them that's not a mindless subjection to the whims of your husband It's meant to be a mutual self-giving. It's meant to be the way, look, when someone looks at your marriage, what they're supposed to see, what they're supposed to see, when they look at my marriage, right? Let me not point the finger at you. Let me point it at me. When they look at my marriage, what they're supposed to see is a husband who is willing to do anything to make sure his wife is cared for and protected and wants to serve her at every turn. That's what they're supposed to see when they look at me, because that's what Christ does for us. And they look at the way my wife loves me and yes, submits to me as the head of our home and engages with me. They're meant to see the way the church loves and respects and honors Christ. That's, that's, what's, on, that's what's on display in a gospel-centered marriage. So, now think about that in the bedroom. That's not just true outside the bedroom. It's true inside the bedroom. Where? What Jesus is saying to us is look, when husband and wife comes together in covenant union, in that one flesh union, when they come together in sex and sexual union, what happens is an experience of the love and intimacy of Christ. So in other words, what we've learned about marriage is this, it's a placeholder. When we get to eternity, our marriages won't exist because the thing that they're meant to represent will be fulfilled, our union with Christ as his bride, the church. So we won't be married to one another any longer. We'll be married to our true and better groom, our true and better spouse will finally be with him. And sex in itself and the experience we have in sex is meant to teach us what the intimacy that Christ desires with us is like and what it will be like when we're with him. Now you think about the pleasurableness of sex, you think about the delight of sex, you think about the goodness of sex and think about how much joy if, if, you're, in, if you're in the context where you're having sex. Think about the goodness and the intimacy you experience with your spouse hopefully as a result of that, the good that comes from it. Uh, and now think about that magnified by a thousand because that will be the experience of intimacy we will have with Christ in heaven, right? We're not talking sexually there anymore, right? We're talking about what sex is meant to represent and meant to show us that kind of intimacy, that kind of trust, that kind of self-giving love, that kind of protecting love, that kind of goodness and wholesomeness and wholeness. That's all what sex is meant to point us towards. So now, hopefully I'm being clear about that. Is that clear enough? Another just powerful weapon for you, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 6, 13, so fascinating to me, right? Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll read it to you. Let me flip over. This is one that's been really helpful to me in my journey to want to walk in righteousness in this area. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 really have a lot to say about sex. And we're actually, we're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 7 next week. But 1 Corinthians six thirteen. uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he uses this analogy. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. And then he says, this is the important part, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That's clear enough, right? He's saying, okay, I don't want you to do things that are sexually immoral because your body belongs to Jesus. He purchased you at a price. He owns you, not just your soul, but he owns your body. Therefore, obey him. You guys get that, right? That's easy enough. It's kind of the, it's the restriction. Like don't, don't participate in these kinds of things. But then he goes on to say something he doesn't have to say because he says, our bodies are for the Lord. And they they belong to him. But then he goes on to say, and the Lord is for the body, which should cause us to go, huh, what does that mean? In what way is the Lord for the body? Okay, there's probably a number of things you can unpack from that. But here's what I think is probably the general principle there is that he's saying, there is a way in which you will experience intimacy with Christ and experience his love and a relationship with him, there's a way in which you'll experience those things because you have a body that you wouldn't be able to if you didn't have a body. You follow that? So he's saying your bodies are something that will enable you to experience joy and delight in Christ. And one of, and he's talking about sexual morality, so the opposite end of like, well, don't, don't commit sexual morality because your body belongs to the Lord. And by the way, the Lord is for your body. I think what he's saying is there's a type of, there is a type of engagement in sex that actually enables you to experience intimacy with Christ and joy in him in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you didn't have a body that you could use to experience sex. thats I mean, that's about as high a notion as I know how to give you when it comes to sex, that it is literally meant to give you deeper insight into the ways of Christ. Now, gosh, That doesn't mean if you are outside the parameters where you can have sex that you somehow get a lesser experience of Christ. We'll talk about that when we talk about singleness. Can we just put a pen in that and hold it? Because I don't want you to walk away with the impression of like, oh, well, if then I can't have sex, well, am I missing out in my relationship with Jesus? And the answer is no. Uh, You get a different gift, okay? So then let's talk about this. The last one, the fourth pillar of a a Christian ethic when it comes to sex. And then we we have got to wrap up with that. Sex exists to extend God's kingdom. Sex exists to extend God's kingdom. So it doesn't just exist to help us understand what our relationship with Jesus is like. It doesn't just exist to teach us about the nature of God. It doesn't just exist because God delights in it and says, I created it and it's good. It exists to extend God's kingdom, his rule and reign, all the places where people find him to be uh, worthy of worship, And it does that in several ways, right? It does it by one, creating families of followers, right? So the family is meant to be the family, husband and wife and kids, hopefully coming from that, Lord willing, are meant to be the, the bedrock foundation of gospel work. They're meant to be the place from which God's gospel work propels forward. Did you know that? Your family is meant to be an incubator. It's meant to be a place where you grow Uh, love for Jesus and and his mission goes forward in the world because of what happens in your house. Church, do you get that? So one of the ways that sex facilitates that is one, it brings husbands and wives together in intimate union and self-protecting love and self-giving love and a healthy sex life between husband and wife facilitates kingdom work because it facilitates a great marriage. But it also has the possibility of producing children. It has the possibility, it doesn't always, but it has the possibility of producing children. And when it does, it creates little arrows of light to fight against darkness. Here's what Psalm 127 says about that. Psalm 127, verse three and four. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What God is saying there is, you shoot your children out into a dark and chaotic world to be ambassadors of the kingdom. They are weapons against unrighteousness in the world. That's what they're meant to be. So sex has the possibility of producing families that extend the kingdom of God, but also... Also, sex exists for the common good. Now, here's the real problem when it comes to sex for personal fulfillment, for my happiness. Whatever makes me happy, that's what I'll do. Here's the real problem with it, is it denies that, it it over-individualizes sex. It says, my sex life is my sex life. But there is no one sex life that doesn't influence and shape everything. We just talked about that at the very beginning, right? Can you really participate in that philosophy of sex and not harm the community in which you live. So one of the things that we need a better view of within the the world and particularly within the Christian community is how everything that God gives us doesn't just exist for us as individuals, but for the common good. It exists to create thriving societies. Sex done well creates thriving communities. Sex done poorly wrecks communities. It's just a fact. There's no way around it. Right? So, we gotta close. Here's what I'll say. I've alluded to it already. When it comes to the practice of sex, okay? Clearly, what God has given us is a context for sex. This is, the, this is the Christian ethos, the Christian ethic, is we participate in sex only in the covenant union of marriage between a husband and a wife. And hopefully what you can see is the reason for that, the reason for that is not restriction, it's not to be prude. It's not, right? It's not to be uh, killjoys. It's because it sets you up to experience all the things sex was designed for. If you remove the covenant context of sex, then what you've done is you have thwarted sex's ability to do the things it was designed to do. You have taken away the ability to display the nature of God, you've taken away to, to cause the, for sex's ability to cause you to cherish Christ's love. You've taken out sex's ability to produce the common good. You've ripped all, when you participate in sex outside of the covenant, right? It hinders the ability of sex to do what it was meant to do. That's the reason, friends, that's the reason to put restrictions around sex. We don't do it to be moralistic. We do it to treasure Jesus. Do you you see it? We do it to treasure Jesus. By the way, that's the only motive powerful enough to help you walk in righteousness, We're gonna talk about that in week four. Okay, friends, thanks for the extra few minutes. I hope they produce good fruit. Let me pray. Lord, what a good gift you've given us in sex, and uh, there's so much to say there, and I just feel like I've only scratched the surface, but we want so much for you to instruct us and to teach us and to help us do what is right and good. We want to walk with you. We wanna cherish you. We wanna love you. Father, as your people... Depart this place now. I imagine there's a lot of things bubbling up inside. Questions, thoughts, uh, perhaps convictions, hurt, hope. I hope. Please let there be hope. And I pray that you would send them out knowing that you are for them, not against them. That you delight in and love them, that you cherish them and you want to walk them into a sex life uh, within covenant marriage should you give them that good gift that will allow them to know you and to worship you and to glorify you. We pray it in the name of Jesus, amen. Friends, we love you so much. Thank you, have a wonderful Sunday. You are dismissed.